Welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Today, we're talking about the model minority myth. I will dive into this concept, why it's so harmful, and then I'm so glad to have a guest joining me today. Her name is Cherie Wong, and she'll be sharing her perspective and experience on this topic. In November 2010, an article was published in Maclean's magazine called Too Asian. For non-Canadian listeners, Maclean's is one of Canada's oldest and most read national magazines. The piece argued that Asian students were invading Canadian universities, taking away enrollment space from white students, and changing the culture in ways that were damaging to real Canadians. The authors shared that Asian students tend to work harder and are more ambitious, that they're more single-minded in their approach to university. They then go on to make the complaint of Asian students being overrepresented in university campuses, thus damaging the fun reputations of schools to white students. This article is rooted in and calls upon the stereotype of the model minority. I should note that the article's title was changed to the enrollment controversy after receiving a lot of criticism. You may have heard the term model minority in the past. It's an especially common narrative applied to the Asian community in North America. We also went over the model minority myth in an earlier episode about anti-racism language and definitions. The term originated in the United States and stems from views of Asian immigrants as being successful, hardworking, and obedient immigrants. The term is generally applied to East, Southeast, and South Asian communities in North America. From an article in the Toronto Star, the idea that these communities are inherently intelligent, studious, hardworking, and polite, and all of these traits have led to Asian Canadians and Americans being successful, wealthy, and less likely to experience racism, especially in comparison to other minority groups. The model minority myth uses generalizations based on surface-level analysis at the expense of detailed, nuanced investigations of the communities. It presents Asian North Americans as a homogenous group with a single experience, instead of diverse cultures and communities with various socioeconomic contexts. The term model minority was coined in 1966 by sociologist William Peterson in an article that he wrote for the New York Times. It was titled, Success Story, Japanese American Style. The article typecasts Asian Americans as successful because they overcome, quote-unquote, self-defeating apathy or self-hatred by obedience and respect for authority. Peterson goes on to write, quote-unquote, By any criterion of good citizenship that we choose, the Japanese Americans are better than any other group in our society, including native-born whites. They have established this remarkable record, moreover, by their own almost totally unaided effort, end quote. The article fuels an American dream rhetoric because it frames Asian Americans as the embodiment of the American success story. It conveniently plays into a liberal democratic myth of equality in the United States. The article goes on to praise Japanese Americans for achieving success despite oppression, such as World War II internment camps, that we discussed last week. Peterson argues that Japanese Americans have suffered color prejudice just like black Americans, but are not problem minorities. In this way, Peterson is blaming other minorities for not overcoming their plight and oppression the same way Japanese Americans have. 
The model minority myth is used exclusively as a tool of white supremacy because it establishes a racial hierarchy in which minority groups are compared and stacked relative to their closeness to whiteness. Professor of Political Science and Asian American Studies, Claire Jean Kim, argues that Asian Americans have been racialized as both inferior to whites and superior to blacks, and as permanently foreign and unassimilable. Asian American author and playwright Robert G. Lee writes in a much more explicit way, whites love us because we're not black. On this point, the model minority myth relies on anti-blackness because it offers Asians a closer proximity to whiteness in their rejection of perceived differences from black people and the black community. These racial comparisons have been around a lot longer than just the 1960s, from the time Asian Americans were brought to America to work on the Central Pacific Railroad, or from the time of the first immigrants to North America from the continent of Asia. They have been compared to black laborers and praised for their superior work ethic. Let's also not forget that the article from Peterson was written in 1966, at the height of the civil rights movement in the United States. This article was presented to suggest that if Japanese Americans had achieved success and rose above barriers of racial discrimination by their own efforts, then other minority groups should too. But the model minority myth says that you can be successful if you have certain values or education. If you fail, that's probably your own fault. So by making claims for success depending on individual ambition, the model minority myth entirely dismisses the existence of systemic and structural racism as a problem in our society. The model minority myth is essentially a tool of white supremacy to hinder solidarity building because it turns minority groups against one another by creating resentment and jealousy and uses comparison as a tool to denigrate all of us. It discourages collective resistance because it presents the Asian community as closer to whiteness. The Asian community has long been discriminated against in North America. Let's go back in time to revisit the many ways in which the Asian community has been systemically discriminated against by anti-Asian policies in Canada. In 1857, discovery of gold in Fraser River Valley, BC, initiated the beginning of a large wave of Chinese immigration to the region, along with workers arriving to build the Pacific Railway. By the completion of the railway in 1885, anti-Chinese racism in BC brought the introduction of what is known as the Chinese head tax. This tax initially started as a $50 entry fee for Chinese immigrants, but later rose to $500 in 1903. $500 represented at least two years of salary for the average Chinese immigrant. The head tax's objective was to stop or slow down immigration from China entirely. It remained in effect until the introduction of the Chinese Immigration Act in 1923, which prevented most new Chinese immigrants from settling in Canada. It was repealed in 1947. But it wasn't just immigration. In 1922, the Public School Board in Victoria, British Columbia, voted to segregate Chinese students and send them to Chinese-only schools. In 1885, the same year that the head tax was introduced, all Chinese people in Canada were banned from federal voting. This was later extended to other Asian groups through the Dominion Elections Act of 1920. 
Last week, we talked about the internment of Japanese Canadians. As you'll remember, immigration from Japan began in 1877. Japanese immigrants were seen as a greater threat because of the growing economic competitiveness of Japan. There was a lot of aggressive anti Japanese lobbying happening in British Columbia specifically. And in 1908, Canada negotiated something called the Hayashi Lemieux Gentlemen's Agreement. In which Japan's government agreed to limit the emigration of its male citizens to Canada to 400 per year. This number was later decreased to 150 only, and it remained in effect until World War II. It wasn't just East Asians. The treatment of South Asians in Canada, specifically Sikhs from India, has a not so great history too. The South Asian community faced a lot of discrimination in the early 1900s. A large wave of immigration started in 1906, and within two years, there were about 5,000 people in British Columbia. As you can guess, this was too many for some people, and this wave was met with a lot of backlash and that taking our jobs rhetoric that we've heard in the past. As a response to the growing public opinion against South Asians, in 1908, the federal government introduced an order in council to prohibit immigration from India. Using really complicated language. The order said that immigrants who had not arrived by a continuous journey from their land of origin could not enter the country whatsoever. This essentially made it impossible for Indians to come to Canada, as their journey usually required stopping in several countries before traveling across the Pacific Ocean to Canada. Remember, this was the early 1900s, and immigration happened using boats. So, this rule essentially halted South Asian immigration until 1947. You might be wondering why the model minority myth is something that we talk about. So, what? Asian Canadians and Asian Americans are being stereotyped as too smart, too hardworking. That doesn't sound so bad. But it is bad for several reasons. First, is that the model minority myth masks anti Asian hate. Understand that anti Asian racism. Rests on xenophobic narratives of Asians as the yellow peril, if you'll remember this term from the last episode. And the yellow peril embodies economic, moral, and cultural threats to the white status quo. The success that made Asian immigrants a model minority has also made Asian immigrants threatening. There's this idea that if Asians become too much of a model, too successful, then they become a threat to whiteness. Asians are forced into the category of the perpetual foreigner. They're forever seen as an outsider from the main society, never fully able to be assimilated into the culture. Through the model minority myth and this perpetual foreigner discourse, it makes the social membership of Asian Canadians as always partial and conditional. Law professor Neil Gatanda writes, That white Americans are deeply wedded to the idea that racism directed against Asian Americans is insignificant or does not exist. And this is entirely wrong. We see the consequence of this in Canada, too. For example, anti Asian racism is not mentioned in Canada's 2019 to 2022 anti racism strategy, which further shows that the model minority myth erases Asians from these kind of anti racism and diversity discussions that are taking place. The second reason that the model minority myth is so harmful is that it masks the inequalities faced by Asian Canadians because they're lumped together as one well off group. There are socioeconomic, political, educational, and psychological needs of the Asian Canadian community that are being ignored. 
According to Canada's 2016 census, among Koreans, Arab, and West Asian Canadians, the poverty rate ranged from 27% to 32%. Among Chinese and Black Canadians, the poverty rate reached 20%. Filipinos were the only visible minority group that had a lower poverty rate than the white population, 7.2% compared to 12%. So it shows that there's a lot of difference between the Asian communities. The census shows that Asian Canadians are overrepresented in low-paying jobs, despite the model minority stereotypes. The Asian community is lumped together and their experiences are lumped together, such as the experience of recent refugees or recent immigrants compared to third or fourth generation Asian Canadians. The reality of poor working class Asian Canadians doesn't fit in the model minority stereotype. So this myth is perpetuating the assumption that Asian North Americans don't require resources and support rendering them invisible in research, especially in Canada. Very few studies are looking specifically at the experiences of Asian Canadians. The model minority myth is perpetuating this idea that the community is beyond racism and doesn't need support. Thirdly, the model minority myth causes a lot of internal pressures to meet high standards with a psychological effect. This myth causes a fear of failure and a pressure to conform to stereotypes among a lot of Asians. The model minority myth is perpetuated everywhere. Think about it. Media, politics, in the home, in schools. And this results in internalization. The common stereotypes about high academic achievement, strong work ethic, ambitious career choices, but also on the negative side, poor social skills, being nerdy or unfriendly. And this has an impact on mental health. According to 2015 data from the Toronto District School Board, Asian Vietnamese and Bangladeshi students were less likely to feel positively about themselves than their peers, and they worried more about the future and schoolwork. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have an interview with Sheree Wong. Did you know we are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with? If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch and we'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, nononsensepodcast at gmail.com, K-N-O-W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. We are so happy to have a speaker joining us today. Her name is Cherie Wong. Cherie Wong, she, her pronouns, is a Politico policy analyst and an advocate. With over seven years of experience in politics and nonprofit organizations, Cherie brings an intersectional lens to dismantle systems of domination and marginalization. She is the founder and executive director of Alliance Canada Hong Kong, ACHK, a grassroots Hong Kong Canada community organization that mobilizes civic actions in support of the democratic development of Hong Kong. She is known as a fierce human rights advocate. Cherie has centered anti-oppression, intersectionality, and community interests in her work to advance political changes in Canada. 
Outside of her work with Alliance Canada Hong Kong, Cherie works with various individuals and nonprofit organizations in policy development and community engagement as a freelance consultant. You can find Cherie on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We will make sure to include all of her social media and contact information in the show notes. Hello, Cherie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. You were highly recommended by someone from uh, our team, and I'm just so thrilled that you uh, were able to make some time to chat with us today. Yeah, I am really excited. You know, I've always been a big fan of podcasts, even though I never seem to find time to do it myself. So I'm yeah. <laughs> loving that I got invited. Thank you. No, <laughs> no problem. So please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work at Alliance Canada Hong Kong. Yeah. So like you introduced, I am a Hong Kong Canadian. I identify myself as a settler on Turtle Island, uh, acknowledging the colonial history in, uh, in Canada itself. You know, I lived kind of a nomadic lifestyle. Like I was born in Canada, but my family moved back to Hong Kong uh, right when Hong Kong was being handed over. So I spent my childhood there and I moved mm-hmm. back to Canada when I was a teenager. And I usually introduce myself also in relation to my family heritage. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, my family members came from China. So my dad's family actually fled from Shanghai to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom's family fled from the Hakka region in Canton, uh, mm-hmm. uh, fled from China during the Cultural Revolution. So I always want to kind of like, before introducing my work, like, Uh, giving thanks to my grandparents who sacrificed Mm -hmm. so much so that I could be here today. And that's kind of why I uh, founded Alliance Canada Hong Kong and do the advocacy work today of promoting democratic development in Hong Kong, but also ways to hold China accountable for human rights violation Mm -hmm. in solidarity with other communities who have been victimized. Mm -hmm. I love that you give thanks to your parents and your grandparents and that like very rich uh, as the story of their lives and how they've come to Canada, but also just how they've really shaped who you are and your sense of identity. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's been such a difficult time for Hong Kongers the past two years as we're dealing with the death of our governance and democracy and democratic developments. Mm-hmm. So giving thanks to the fact that when they fled, my parents were able to grow up in Hong Kong. I was able to grow up in Hong Kong. It's a place and city that we all love and want to protect. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you were in Hong Kong? Oh, unfortunately, it's been, I think, uh, going into three years. Mm-hmm. I will not be able to return due to my activism, but mm-hmm. I hope uh, one day once we have um, been liberated that I would be able to go home. <laughs> How big is the Hong Kong community in Canada? It's quite big. We actually recently did a campaign uh, on the 2020, uh, 2021 census to ensure that Hong Kongers are counted in the census data. But there isn't really any reliable information about how big the community is. We know there's a huge concentration in Vancouver, Toronto, and Calgary. Uh, but we hope the census will bring us a bit more information on the numbers. <laughs> Mm, Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting and a really interesting initiative to push for Hong Kong Canadians to be identified as that, to choose to be identified as a Hong Kong Canadian. 
versus just what you sometimes see on census where it'll just be Asian. And we'll talk a little bit about the synthesization, uh, which you really educated me on. So I'd love to, to talk a little bit more about that. But before, I'd love to maybe first dive into this question of the model minority myth. Earlier in the episode, we dive into the issue of the model minority myth and how it's used to prop up white supremacy. Have you experienced this kind of discrimination yourself or seen it in your community? Yeah. When I first moved back to Canada, I entered into a predominantly white high school where racism isn't really an issue of concern, not for the teachers, not for the students, and definitely not for you know the community around us. So I bought into you know the model minority myth, thinking that I could be as good if I outperform myself, if I work twice as hard. And back then, right. you know, racism and discrimination isn't really taught in Canadian high school. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until university that I actually start understanding systemic and institutionalized racism and what white mm-hmm. supremacy looks like. And, you know, identifying that in my own life and in my own attitude towards others as well. Like it took a lot of time for me to unlearn the model minority mm-hmm. myth. And it is most definitely a very prominent mentality in the East Asian community specifically, but in the larger Asian community as well. And in a lot of discussion with my friends, we kind of talked about how generations of immigrants were forced to adapt in a racist society. And one of the ways that they have you know, believed in it is buying into model minority behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we are taught by our parents as well, like the last generation of immigrants. It's really beginning like this generation where Asians who are engaging in that anti-racist work are beginning to see through this trend and beginning to talk about it. But, you know, it's still a very widespread phenomenon. And it's something that I think will take a bit of time to address, but it is um, becoming a more prominent issue. It might be a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it's always a topic um, I think East Asians need to talk more about is mm. the internalized um, internalized anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenous racism in our own mm. community. I see a lot more East Asians becoming anti-racist advocates but yet they exhibit blatant anti-Blackness, anti-Indigenous racism. And I just want to say, um, being anti-racist is being anti-racist. You can't advocate for your own favor and leave others behind. That's not what this past year has taught us. We need to do better for our community. And that includes other Black, Indigenous and people of color in our larger community here in Canada. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. The issue is white supremacy and anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism is all a part of this massive problem that affects everybody. It's something that our community has, you know, struggled a lot with, especially shortly after the Atlanta shooting. People talked a lot more about racism, but somehow skipped the very basis that we also benefit from anti-Black racism. We also benefit from anti-Indigenous racism. And we need to confront those as fiercely as we confront anti-Asian racism. And you're absolutely right. I think, especially after the Atlanta shootings, this conversation about what solidarity looks like across different um, fights for equality between different communities really definitely came to the forefront of like, how do we work together better? There is definitely some support, but we need to really make that stronger. 
it's, awesome. it's a question I ask myself and my community members all the time. And, you know, it's an ongoing work, right? Like unlearning doesn't just end. You don't unlearn everything ever. You have to keep actively doing it. So I think it's just um, an issue that we need to confront head on and continue to do that work. Yeah. And what you, what you mentioned about how we have to unlearn is so... Uh, it hits really close to home because I also am really on this journey of unlearning. Um, and this podcast is definitely helping to do that. But it's crazy just how internalized so many of these misconceptions, stereotypes are within us and just ingrained from such a young age. Right. And I think it's also one of the ways that we can really identify model, uh, model minority myths. It's almost exclusively used um, among the Asian communities. Mm-hmm. So I think this is one of the ways that we could look at model minority myths as a specific form of anti-Asian racism, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, again, something that we have talked a lot about during COVID, but not really anyone identifies how it has manifested itself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, model minority is something that a lot of other communities also use, but it is also very prominent in the Asian community for, like you said, like, smart like the asian kids good at math um Mm -hmm. good at badminton i think is one of the ones uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just because it is sometimes like yeah it may be a positive quote-unquote positive stereotype to say like oh yeah they're so smart and they're so studious and whatever else it's still harmful and it's still like discrimination and stereotypes specifically like as you mentioned specifically against the asian community So it is Asian Heritage Month. What does Asian Heritage Month mean to you as a Hong Kong or Canadian? And why do you think it's an important opportunity for us to to celebrate and recognize? It's, you know, a month of celebration and a spotlight on the Asian community. I think that's that's worth celebrating. Um, Marginalized communities don't often get this kind of attention and almost like a month of celebration for being who you are. It's not an experience that many of us get to have outside of this month. Kids getting told, get your stinky food away from me, like speak my language, speak English or get out. Like this kind of racism is still very common in Canada. So I think having an Asian Heritage Month, being able to um, celebrate our culture is it's really valuable as a Hong Konger, like our language and culture has been under state suppression. So Mm -hmm. it's almost a month that we are able to remind ourselves like this, we have no time to waste, but to preserve our own culture and languages moving forward and reflect on historical events uh, that kind of help us shape what Asian identity looks like today. Um, You know, it's not really a monolithic identity, but being all here in Canada, uh, we have, a certain shared social experience as the Asian community. So I think this is also a month for us to be in solidarity with each other and just um, be happy that we have the space to celebrate the diversity of our community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to your point, I, you had just mentioned that we often make the mistake of lumping together the Asian community in the West. And when this community represents so many diverse cultures and ethnicities. So to your earlier point, we were talking about, so we were talking about the issue of sinicization and the lumping of people under our label of, of Chinese or what we think Chinese is. Can you explain what this is for some of our listeners? This was new terminology for me as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you look at the geographical map of China, you'll notice it's a very large region. 
And like many people kind of assume that there is a monolithic culture or a dominant culture that is prominent everywhere. But in reality, different regions have their own culture, have their own language and entire ethnicities that exist within specific regions. One of the examples that I usually use to kind of help people understand is like people assume Chinese is a language, Mm -hmm. um, but most often they think it's synonymous with um, the language of Mandarin. Even though most Chinese folks, what is identified as Chinese folks speak Mandarin as their dominant language, it's also different depending on which region you're from. So mainland Chinese in the north versus mainland Chinese uh, Mandarin in the south versus Taiwanese Mandarin, they're all different. So it's really important to kind of just um, understand synthesization as a way that you're erasing the entire diversity people consider as China, as Taiwan, as Hong Kong, as Macau, and that region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And I hope that I hope that we're starting to move in a direction where uh, we're really starting to respect and identify the differences in the communities that we have. 2020 has been wild, an unprecedented unprecedented year for the entire world because of the COVID-19 outbreak. There were and are many stories of people across Canada, of people of Asian descent being physically attacked or yelled at. How has this experience been for you over the last year and for members of your community? It's been heartbreaking. We hear news of our elders being attacked on the streets. You know, that news doesn't just um, affect us because we're Asian communities, but we can picture that happening to our grandparents, to our own family members, and one day ourselves. Like, I've been spat on the street since COVID has started. There's been numerous racial slurs thrown at me. And it's unfortunately becoming normalized. It's, you know, being communicated as uh, just an irrational action, but really these kind of attacks are malicious and they are hurting very real people and their families. So it's been heartbreaking. Our community is really hurting and trying to build our own care in our community has been very important in the last two years uh, since COVID. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear that. What can we do to ensure people are safe from this kind of mistreatment? And what is something that you would like for those people who are committing the attacks to know? I think the people that you choose to terrorize because of the skin color that we have, we have friends and family and loved ones just like you. And I don't think anyone would appreciate being that their loved ones are being terrorized on the streets just because we have a different skin color. It's malicious and it's unkind. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to let the community know, like, we need your support now more than ever. Like, we have to look out for each other and protect each other. And um, I hope moving forward, like, this conversation about uh, anti-Asian racism has come in such a such a good time, I guess, to talk about this issue. So I think more people are being aware of it, these kind of actions. So I'm hopeful about the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm hopeful, too. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Education is a huge part of it. Awareness is a huge part of it. And yeah, we need to remind ourselves and people around us that this is wrong. Like we can't just be witnesses. We we really need to be a part of creating and supporting change, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And can, 
like having to be aware that like Canada is not free of racism. We're far from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Confronting that truth is a very important step on this long journey of becoming Mm -hmm, mm anti-racist. Thank you so much, Marie, for your time today. Awesome. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Sheree Wong for sharing her wisdom. I could listen to her all day. Do connect with her via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of her contact information is in the show notes. You can also learn more about the work she's doing with Alliance Canada Hong Kong. As we've discussed and as Sheree's outlined, the model minority myth is anti-Asian racism, plain and simple. It may not sound harmful, but by stereotyping Asians as a group capable of overcoming oppression on their own or thinking that they don't experience racism and lumping this group together, their unique contexts and struggles are dismissed. They are not a homogenous group, and they must be included in our conversations on anti-racism work. As we've seen over the last year, anti-Asian racism not only exists here in Canada, but is growing. So we need to do the work to tackle this issue now and together in solidarity. Join us next week for the next episode. But in the meantime, engage with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. The handle is racism is nonsense. Racism period is period nonsense. If you're a community organizer who would like to collaborate with us, contact us at nononsensepodcast at gmail.com. Also in the show notes. This episode was researched by Beverly Osunzua, produced by Nicola. Jade Sullivan manages our communications. 